Please uh, take your Bibles and turn them to Hebrews uh, chapter uh, 10 as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews. If you were here last Sunday, we began uh, to look at verses 19 uh, through 39, uh, which can be summed up with the uh, question that actually uh, I made the uh, title of the message, uh, Am I Shrinking Back in Sin or Moving Forward in Faith? Uh, this is a message to believers, to followers of Christ. And so the question is, am I shrinking back in sin or moving forward in faith? No believer remains stagnant and a standstill. You're either moving forward or you're going backwards. So this is a wonderful message uh, to be able to take a spur, uh, personal inventory uh, of your life. Now, last week I fully intended uh, to finish this message, which would have taken us into chapter 11 today. But upon reflection, I'm, I'm actually glad we did not finish. And the reason I say that is because here in verses 19 through 39, uh, we have come to the climax of the book of Hebrews. We've come to the very heart of the book. We've come to the main truth that the writer wants to challenge and impact our hearts with. In light of that, it's good to linger a little longer uh, over these truths to make sure uh, we do not miss their full impact. Now, before we begin, let me remind you that the book of Hebrews was written to a church that was made up of Hebrew Christians, people who had had a long history practicing Judaism uh, before their conversion to Christ. Uh, we have already discovered in the book of Hebrews that these particular Hebrew Christians had begun their Christian faith very, very well. But due to severe persecution, they had begun to drift from God's Word. They had begun to doubt God's promises. In chapter 5, we are told that they became dull of hearing, which means they became unresponsive to God's Word. Instead of moving forward, they started moving backward. They began to regress into spiritual immaturity. They lost sight of the priceless treasure they possessed in Jesus Christ. And they were tempted to make the foolish error of exchanging the greater for the lesser by retreating from Jesus Christ and returning to their old, familiar, more safer Judaism. Now, it's important to see the style the writer uses to uh, challenge the Hebrews, these Hebrew Christians remain faithful in their relationship to Christ. As we've seen, he alternates between words of encouragement and words of warning. In the encouragement passages, he lifts up, like no other book in the Bible, the supremacy of Jesus Christ. He lifts up all the grace and the mercy of Christ that's been made available to us in our present trials, and also focuses on the glorious future reward for each and every believer. In the warning passages, the focus is on the severity of God's discipline in the life of the believer. If 
the believer, fails to appropriate the free mercy and grace being offered to him by God and falls into disbelief and a pattern of disobedience. There literally is no other book in the Bible where you will find any greater words of encouragement or more serious words of warning than in the book of Hebrews. You know, I think of uh, Romans chapter 11. There's a phrase there uh, that really captures the book of Hebrews. It says, Behold then the kindness and severity of God. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. And the book of Hebrews is all about both God's kindness and His severity. But it is very important for us not to lose sight of the fact that in both God's kindness and in His severity, they are rooted in His love, in His love for His children. No one has a love as tender as our Heavenly Father. And no one has a love as tough as our Heavenly Father. He simply loves us too much to allow us to continue with sinful attitudes or sinful behavior that He knows will lead us down a path of self-destruction. Therefore, we find in the book of Hebrew not only words of tender encouragement, but also words of tough warning. And in today's message, we see both contrasted, and we begin with words of tender encouragement. I hope you picked up a, a copy of the a sermon notes as you were coming in. Uh, now, keep in mind, we began this message last Sunday, so the first two points, the first half, even into the back half, it's all going to be reviewed from last Sunday, and then we'll begin into the uh, new material. So look at that first truth. And uh, these words of tender encouragement, God's gracious invitation to the believer. And what is that gracious invitation? That we are invited to enter God's presence through Christ's blood. Look at verses 19 and 20 of uh, chapter 10. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which He, Jesus, inaugurated for us through His veil, that is, His flesh. In other words, we looked at this last week. It's simply saying that for the believer, every obstacle has been removed that would keep us from God's presence. Because when Jesus died on Calvary's cross, when He shed His blood, that blood paid the penalty for our sin. He took the judgment that we deserved in order that we might know God's mercy today. And not only are we invited into God's presence through the blood of Christ, we are invited to come, that second point, to our great and faithful high priest who gives mercy when we sin and grace in our trials. Verse 21 says, we have this great priest over the house of God, and beginning in Hebrews 1 all the way through this 10th chapter, we've seen the priestly ministry of Jesus highlighted, how He moves upon the heart of a believer, how He grants mercy and grace. And so when you put these two things together, it's saying that you and I now 
even in the midst of our sin and failure. Now, don't miss this. It's, it, believers hear this, and I think they, they have the thought, this is almost too good to be true. But it is true. No matter your sin, no matter your failure, no matter your ups and downs, you have the freedom to come into God's presence. And you have the freedom to come into God's presence first to receive the mercy of Jesus in your sin and in your failure. And not only His mercy to cleanse, but also His grace to empower you to turn from that sin and to walk in righteousness, to walk in holiness. And that leads us to that third point there under His gracious invitation. And that is what we must do in accepting God's invitation. How do we reciprocate as believers to this invitation to come into God's presence to receive mercy and grace from our high priest? And, it, and the Scripture tells us three ways we're to reciprocate. Number one, we're to draw near with a sincere heart in verse 22. And last Sunday we looked at what that sincere heart is. It, is, it has two thoughts. It's an undivided heart. In other words, in light of who Jesus is, what He did for me, I'm to come with an undivided heart, giving Him my total allegiance to submit to His authority, to serve to His agenda, to seek to live for His approval. And not only do I come with an undivided heart, I come with a transparent heart. In other words, because of what Jesus did for me on Calvary's cross in paying the penalty of my sin, I can take the mask off. I can be the real me in my struggle in my sin, in my failure. And we mentioned last week uh, where it says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. That word confidence is parousia in the Greek text. And it, the literal rendering of that word has to do with be, ha, having boldness of speech, to be able to speak frankly. And so what this is saying, God says, come, you come into my presence. Take off the mask. Be totally transparent, even with your sin, even with your failure, even with your struggles. And you can speak frank with me. You can be totally open. You can be totally honest. And as you do, you're not going to be met with the fury of my wrath because my son took that wrath for you. You're going to be met with mercy as you confess your sin, as you're open and transparent about that sin. And you're not only going to be met with mercy, you're going to be met with grace to empower you to turn from that sin and begin walking in righteousness and holiness. But not only with a sincere heart, it says I'm to hold fast uh, the confession of my hope. That word hope is synonymous in the New Testament with confidence. So I'm to come with that undivided, transparent heart, but I'm also to come confidently, confident in God and His promises for me, that His blood is greater than my sin, that I will be met with mercy and grace. He did say, I would remember your sins no more, that I would write my words on your heart and on your mind, and I would give you an empowerment that you could never have on your own. And then the third thing, he says, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He says, yes, you come with that undivided, transparent heart. You come confident in my promises, but also come recognizing that when I purchased you, when I saved you, I brought you into a family of believers. And you have responsibility to that family as they have responsibility to you. I never intended you to live again as a lone ranger. I mean, one of the graces, again, God has given us is not only 
the grace and mercy of Jesus, but the love of a family, the love of other believers, where we can find encouragement, where we can find accountability. So that is God's gracious invitation to the believer. And then in sharp contrast, after these most tender words of encouragement, you find these very tough words of warning in our second point, God's solemn warning to the believer who spurns his invitation and instead chooses to keep on sinning. Now let's read the warning once again. It is a very stern warning. We've been seeing that every warning in the book of Hebrews does not deal with the loss, it deals with believers. And it does not deal with the loss of salvation, it deals with chastisement, it deals with discipline. And this particular warning is for that believer again, who spurns God's invitation, instead chooses to continue in his sin. Uh, look at beginning at verse 26 is the warning, for if we go on sinning willfully. Notice he says, for if we, who's he referring to? This church of Hebrew Christians, and he includes himself with them. So this is, a, again, a warning to believers. If we, as believers, as a church, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, and in the Greek text, I thought there's the full knowledge of the truth. It's a synonym to conversion. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said... Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge who? His people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now again, this is review. We covered this last Sunday. So if you were not here, if you want to get the full message, uh, go to uh, our church website to get that. But for the review, let's just walk through these points again. Number one, when a believer sins, he has a choice. I want to make this very simple. It's a passage that's been... Uh, convoluted, made very complicated, but it's not. It's a very simple passage that brings us a stern warning in believers. When a believer sins, when you sin, when I sin, and we all struggle with sin, and we all fall at times, we have a choice. The believer can confidently, as we've already said, despite his sin and failure, no matter what it is, no matter how terrible it is, you can come right into God's presence through Christ's blood, to receive mercy, to receive grace, or you can what? You can choose to keep on sinning. Now, that second point, when a believer refuses to appropriate God's mercy through Christ's sacrifice, there is no other sacrifice God has provided. Therefore, God is left with no choice but to severely discipline. And that's the point of that phrase when it says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It's not saying that you become lost as a believer. It's saying if you do not appropriate the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you, there is no other sacrifice. There is no other place for you to go for mercy and grace. And therefore, if you turn from that sacrifice, if you turn from the mercy and grace He's offering to you as He invites you to come, 
and you choose to sin willfully, continue in that path, then what choice have you left God but to severely discipline you? Now, why the severity of the discipline? We raise that question in the notes. Three reasons. First, the believer who continues in sin, think about what he's doing from God's perspective. He's defiantly looking at God and saying, stay out and leave me alone. That's exactly what you and I are saying to God. If in our sin and failure we refuse to come into His presence, to acknowledge our sin, receive mercy and grace, and instead to continue to walk down that path of unbelief and sin, we're saying, God, just, just, just stay out. Leave me alone. See, we're denying what? The Lordship of Christ. We deny the Lordship of Christ, and we live lives that are virtually undistinguishable from unbelievers. So that's one reason for the severity of the discipline. The second reason, the believer who continues in sin counts the Son of God as worthless in comparison to enjoying His sin. And that's what he meant by that statement. How much severer punishment does a person deserve who is trampled underfoot the Son of God? And that phrase, trampled underfoot, means you consider something worthless. And we said last week, probably the best definition that you'll ever hear of sin is simply this. It's anything, anything or anyone that you value more than Jesus Christ. And see, when a believer spurns God's invitation to continue to walk in that path of sin, what in essence he's doing is saying, I'm saying my sin is more valuable to me than the very Son of God himself who loved me and gave his life for me. And not only... Am I saying that? Look at the next point. The believer who continues in sin cheapens the blood that saved him by embracing the sin Jesus shed his blood for. Notice it, it says there in the latter part of verse 29 that he's regarded as unclean, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. In other words, how terrible for a believer to literally not only enjoy but to embrace the sin that Jesus died for. And not only that, look at that next point, the believer who continues in sin treats with indifference the pleading, convicting, wooing, and leading of the Holy Spirit who lives in him. Verse 29 says, we insult the Spirit of grace. So that is why the discipline becomes so severe. Because God has made every provision for the believer to come into His presence, to acknowledge his sin, to know cleansing, to know mercy, to know grace. But the believer that spurns that chooses to continue to walk in sin. He's denying that Jesus is Lord. He's saying, God, leave me alone. Stay out. Lord, my, my sin is more valuable to me than the very Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You're embracing the sin Jesus died for, and you're insulting the Holy Spirit that lives in you as you refuse His pleadings and His warnings and His convicting in your life. Now, how does God discipline? That next question. This is where we ended the message last Sunday. How does God discipline? The believer will not suffer the loss of salvation, but God can take their life or... And this may be worse sometimes, let them live the rest of their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. How does God discipline? The believer will not suffer the loss of salvation, 
but God can take their life or let them live the rest of their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. Now, again, folks, keep in mind, this is a warning that's not given to a believer that has just fallen into sin. It is a believer who's not only fallen into sin, but has spurned God's invitation, and he's continuing to walk in his sin. There's, there's a pattern. He's persisting in his defiance towards God. He's persisting in that attitude of refusing to surrender and to acknowledge God and to obey God. And you'll notice we looked at several passages. And again, we don't have time. Last week, we went to every one of these and read them. But I've shared with you that the very key to interpreting the entire book of Hebrews is the example of the children of Israel in Hebrews 3 and 4. And there's a great example of what we're talking about. You remember that example? They began, this was a redeemed people that he brought out of Egypt. God's intent was to bring them out of Egypt and to take them, lead them where? Into the promised land. That land flowing with milk and honey. But instead of the people accepting God's gracious invitation to know His mercy and grace, they refused to believe God. They not only fell into sin, they began to develop a pattern of unbelief and disobedience, which was culminated, just climaxed, at Kadesh Barnea when they refused to go into the promised land. So as a result of the pattern that they had developed, as a result of their persistent rebellion and failure to surrender to God, God said, that's it. And I swear to you in my anger, you will not enter the rest I had always planned for you. I had intended to bring you into the promised land, this land flowing milk and honey. But you will not know that rest of faith. You are going to spend the rest of your lives wandering in a wilderness... And every one of you are going to die in that wilderness, or the adults. And then once you're that this that generation is all dead, I'll I'll bring your children in. Now, did God abandon His people in the wilderness? No, He still loved them. If you read the Scripture, He still was with them. He still protected them. He still provided for them. But as a result of their persistent unbelief and sin. They never were able to experience what God had intended for them. That rest of faith, the promised land. And they had to live with the consequences of the sin, their sin the rest of their lives. And then when you go to 1 Corinthians 9 and 10, that second passage, Paul goes right back to that very same example. And he says, this was written for you and I as a church, as believers, that we not make the same mistake that they made. And then he gives this beautiful example. He said, how they all began. Remember how we looked at that word all and how often it was used? They all began the race. But with what? Most of them God was not pleased. And he talks about how they fell dead in the wilderness. And he says, you heed that example. Lest you fall also into unbelief and disobedience. And then 1 Corinthians 11 is a great example. That there are times when God steps in and He says, that's enough. And He will take a believer's life prematurely. Where He says, if you're going to persist in bringing shame and reproach to my name, then it's just time for you to come on home. And we're going to deal with it there and get it right. Again, 
Once caught by God's love, there's no escape. He loves you with a love that will never let you go, but he loves you with a love that's never going to let you off. And again, no one loves as tender as our Heavenly Father loves, but no one loves as tough as he loves when he needs to be tough. And then we ended with that example of David in Samuel, uh, in uh, 2 Samuel 12. Here was a great man of God. It says he had a heart for God. He wrote all those psalms, led his people in worship. And then in a premeditated, willful, deliberate act, he committed adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, he not only saw her, but he had her invited into his room. Knew that she was a married woman. And then you know the story. She became pregnant. And then this great man of God, who had just committed adultery with Bathsheba, instead of accepting God's invitation to know grace and mercy and being honest and open about his sin, he tried to hide it by having Uriah kill her husband. So now he's guilty of not only adultery, but he's guilty of murder. And not only guilty of adultery and murder, but guilty of total hypocrisy. Because now he's putting on a mask as if he's still living for God. He's still going to worship. He's still singing those psalms that he wrote. He's putting on a great show before the people. And you remember eventually, God sent Nathan to him, the prophet. And the basic message of Nathan was what? David, you're the man. And you remember at that point, we looked at this last week, David broke. And he says, I've sinned. You remember God's message to him? David, I've pardoned you. I forgive you. You shall not die. Nevertheless, and then God mentions a number of consequences that David would go to his grave knowing. He said, the sword will never depart from your family. There's going to be constant turmoil because of your sin. And you know the story. How one of his sons raped his half-sister. Then another son killed that son. And then you remember Absalom and his mutiny and his revolt against his daddy. Where now then David as an old man who's been king for many years. The people, you know, Absalom sways the people. They side with that. And then here's this old great man of God. And he's fleeing in the wilderness, having to flee the palace, flee Jerusalem. A refugee again, a fugitive again, like he was in his early years when Saul was after him. But let me ask you something. Yes, he lived the rest of his life having to deal with the consequences of his deliberate, willful sin. But did God stop loving him? No. Did God stop giving David his grace and mercy? If you want a great example of this, and we do this real quickly, turn over to Psalm 3. I just want to show you something. You need to understand that God even used those consequences to take D- David deeper with him. David made a great con- in another psalm, not this particular psalm you're turning to, he said, the nearness of God is my good. 
And God even used the consequences of his sin, that brokenness, that anguish, to draw him deeper in his relationship with the Lord. Now, he wrote Psalm 3. Here's the thing I want you to see, simple thing I want you to see. He wrote Psalm 3 in the wilderness when he's running from Absalom, who's coming after his own daddy to kill him with a far superior army. Now, don't miss this. Listen to me now. So he's in the wilderness, fleet. He knows, he knows this is all because of his willful, deliberate sin that he continued in and was the hypocrite years ago. He knows this is the fruition of all of that. So you would think, you know, he would just be eaten up with regret and remorse, just with the thought, I'll just, you know, roll over and die, let Absalom kill me. But look at what this man wrote. And he would have written this the first night when he fled. Listen, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me. My glory, and the one I love, and the one who what? Lifts up my head. Here's a man suffering the consequences from his own sin. Could have easily been eaten up with remorse and regret. And he says, no, no, God lifts up my head. Yes, I may be suffering the consequences of my sinful failures in the past. But God has not abandoned me. God's mercy and grace is still there for me. He's walking with me. And he says, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, voice, verse 4, and he answered me from his holy hill. And I love this, verse 5, I lay down and slept. Now just think about that. Suffering the consequences from his own sin, but he was able to lay down and what? Sleep. Folks, that is a man with a clear conscience. That is a man that knows he's forgiven that knows he's forgiven despite the consequences of his sin. And he says, I awoke for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people. And that's not, he's not embellishing there. That's a fact. They're after him with, again, a far superior army who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Yes, David had sinned, but in his sin, and with the consequences, he had learned something. Salvation belongs to God. Mercy graces with God, and thy blessing be upon thy people. And that little note there, for the believer, there is nothing more tragic than the sad consequences of forgiven sins. And that's true. There's nothing more tragic than the sad consequences of forgiven sin. But I just wanted to emphasize, despite that, doesn't mean we lose God's grace, we lose God's mercy. There still can come brokenness, and in the midst of that, developing a much closer, intimate relationship with God. Now move to the third point, and we'll probably just get this in this morning, and then we'll save that last point for uh, next week when we uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together, and that'll be a wonderful emphasis for the Lord's Supper. The third point is God's reminder of the believer's faithfulness in past trials 
to encourage the believer's faithfulness in present trials. Now again, put all this in the context of, of what's happening. Hebrew Christians suffering persecution. They're tempted to retreat from Christ and return to their former Judaism. So what he comes, this is the very heart of the book, God's gracious invitation. No. Why would anyone be so stupid to give up the greater for the lesser? No, you come, come. And in my presence, I'll meet you with mercy. I'll meet you with open arms. And not only mercy to cleanse you from your sin and your unbelief and your failure, but grace to empower you to continue to walk faithfully with me. And then he gives them that warning. And listen, if you refuse that invitation, if you continue to walk in unbelief and sin, you're walking right into discipline. And it can be severe. And I don't want that for you. I love you. I have no desire. I have no joy in that. I want you to accept my gracious invitation. And then to try to encourage them, he reminds them of their past faithfulness uh, in their past trials uh, to encourage them to be faithful in their present trials. Go back to Hebrews chapter 10, if you're not already there, and uh, let's look at these verses together. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, look at the first thing he does. He reminds them how they endured suffering for Christ. Look at verses 32 and 33, but remember the former days. When after being enlightened, again, another synonym for their conversion, for after being enlightened, after being converted, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. So again, you need to see what God's doing through the writer of the book of Hebrews. He's reminding them of their past and all the evidences that their Christianity is authentic. It's the real deal. He says, do you remember when you were first converted? Do you remember when you first, you, the lights came on, and you saw the glory of Jesus Christ, and, and your heart became His home, and, and you began to know His mercy and grace? How you endured great suffering for the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I, th I think of 2 Corinthians 4, where it talks about how we have this treasure of Christ and the, these frail clay pots in order that the excellency of the power may be of God and not from ourselves. And then he goes on and says, yes, as believers, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. And yes, we may be uh, perplexed, but not to the point of despair. And yes, we may be persecuted, like these Hebrew Christians were being persecuted, but we're not forsaken. And yes, we may often get knocked down in life's contest, but we're never knocked out because God is always there to pick us up. And then James, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials and tribulations. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces what? Endurance, perseverance. And let that, that endurance have its perfect work in order that you might become mature, complete, entire, lacking in nothing. In other words, God uses the trial. He uses the adversity to build spiritual muscles, just like these soldiers. They don't become a soldier without first going what? Through boot camp. There's training that's involved, and that training is tough. I mean, it's a fire. It's a refining fire that they put these guys through and these ladies through. And do we do that because we hate them? No, because we're preparing them for a conflict. We're preparing them for the battle. And God knows we're in a spiritual warfare. And so He allows us to experience adversity. He allows us to experience trial, 
to refine the very steel of our character, to burn away the dross, bringing forth a vessel fit for the master's use. I think of 1 Peter 1. He says, In this we greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while we are distressed by various trials and tribulations, knowing that the proof of our faith is more precious than gold that is refined by fire. And he says all of that is going to resound to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ at His coming. So he reminds them, when you were converted, when you were like, don't you remember how you endured suffering for Christ, how you remained faithful? And not only that, you loved others at great cost. That next point, look at the verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. In other words, what this is talking about, there were some among their group that got arrested. They got sent to prison. Now you had a decision. Okay, Brother Carroll gets sent to prison for his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, Andy Merritt has a decision. Am I going to reach out to my brother and show sympathy and minister and even visit him in prison, knowing that if I do, I will become identified with him, and then I'm likely to encounter the same persecution? Or am I, am, is, am I just going to take the safe way out and I'm just going to retreat? into my little shell, into my little home, and behind the four walls of the church, and hide. With these believers, when they were converted, they, they didn't do that. They, they, they showed the authenticity of their Christianity by loving one another. And what did Jesus say? They will know you are my disciples by what? Your love for one another. And so again, the writer is just reminding them, don't you remember when you were first enlightened how you endured those trials, how you, were in lo- how you loved other believers at, other, at great cost, which demonstrated that they were free from materialism. We just read that, how they, joyf- they accepted joyfully the seizure of their property. Now think about that one. Now think about that. They not only suffered the seizure and the plundering and the destruction of their property and their material goods, they accepted it with what? Joy. He said, again, he's saying, don't you remember? Don't you remember when you were first converted, you were enlightened, that excitement, that passion you had, that grace that empowered you to endure the suffering, to love one another, and to even joyfully suffer the seizure and the plundering and destruction of your property. Now, folks, how were they able to do that? Well, the key is that next phrase at the end of verse 4, because they valued the treasure of Christ above all other things. Notice this, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. In other words, they found what everyone in the world is seeking for. You know what that is? The best possible happiness and the longest lasting happiness that you can find. And they found it in Jesus Christ. They found where true happiness is. That it's not in circumstances, but it's Christ who lives within. And because they had found Christ and He had become suddenly their supreme treasure, they gladly endured the suffering, knowing their eternal reward that awaited them. They gladly showed love to others, their brothers and sisters in the family that were part of the same community. And they gladly accepted the seizure of their property, knowing that they had a more permanent reward in heaven, a greater reward in heaven. Now, 
before we close, let me just show you something that he's doing. You, feel, you remember Revelation chapter 2, the church at Ephesus? What was his con- condemnation against that church? After much commendation, who knows? They had what? They had left their first love. You know, he says, you know, you've, 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 you've stood against evil men, you've stood on God's word, you've suffered for me, you've done many works for me, but he says, I have this one thing against you, you've left your first love. In other words, this church at Ephesus, they had begun to what? Drift. They had begun that downward path. And he recognized that heart problem that existed within the church. Their Christianity had no longer become a, it no longer was a delight to them. It was more of a duty. Their relationship with Christ was something more to be endured than, 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 than enjoyed. And he knew they were in danger. If they continued down that path, although there are many wonderful things about the church. And the simple thing I want to point out to you. Do you remember what his prescription was to that church? Do you know how you return to your first love? He said, the first word he said was, after he said, but I have this against you, you left your first word. He says, is what? Remember. 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 Remember what? He says, remember the former things. Remember what it was like when you were initially converted, when you were enlightened, when you were brought to Christ. The freshness, the passion, the devotion, the wonder, the amazement that you had with Jesus Christ. He says, you remember that. And he says, you return to that. That's how you return. And that's what's happening right here. These are a group of Hebrew Christians, and they're struggling with the persecution. It's worn them down. They're, 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 They're wondering, does God really care? Is God really fair in all this? We, we just don't, we're perplexed with what we're going through. And they're in danger of plunging into unbelief and disobedience, retreating from Christ, going back to Judaism. And he's saying, remember, remember. And, and in your remembering, that's what you need to return to. Now, as we close the service, and we'll leave that last point for the communion service next week. Again, this is a wonderful, wonderful message to take a a spiritual inventory of your life. Let Let me ask you, I'll tell you what, look at your notes. Look at your notes. Let's go to the application, and I'll just end with that. Go to the application. Look at those questions. Here's how we'll end the service today. Would you be willing, in total honesty and transparency, to ask these questions before God of yourself. Where am I going in my walk with God? Where am I going in my walk with God? Am I shrinking back or moving forward? What will happen a year from now if I stay on the path I'm on? Five years from now, ten. See, those are wonderful questions to ask. Where are you right now in your walk with God? Can you honestly say that you're moving forward in your belief in this? Or are you beginning to shrink back? Are you beginning to drift? Are you beginning to neglect God's Word, become dull of hearing, unresponsive, as they had become? Ask yourself, if I continue down this path, where, do you th- where will I be in a year? Where will I be in five years, ten years? And then, those next two things. If shrinking back into sin, I need what? Repentance. If that's where you are this morning as a believer where you've, you've, you've turned away from Christ and you're walking in sin, 
you need to repent. You need to stop in your tracks, turn around, back to Jesus Christ, accept the gracious invitation that's still there for mercy and grace, even in the midst of the consequences of your sin, and return to Him. If moving forward in faith, what do you need? You need endurance. You know, if you say, okay, I, you know, I'm moving forward, well, what you need is endurance. So what you need to do is take a rest stop in the Holy of Holies and ask God for the grace to keep on keeping on because it's difficult to keep on keeping on. Amen? I mean, it's not easy to be the husband God calls you to be or the wife God calls you to be or the father or the mother. It's not easy to be that righteous, holy individual, to be that witness for Christ. It's not easy to deal with spiritual warfare and ridicule and persecution. We do get worn down. We do get tired. We, we, we have a frail humanity. And so, but if you're moving forward, and, you're, and, and if you're moving forward, see, you're going against the tide. I guarantee. And that's why it gets tiring. Well, you need endurance. And what you need is a rest stop in the Holy of Holies. To go into God's presence to find grace to keep on keeping on. Father, we first need your grace to see where we truly are today. Lord, we acknowledge that every one of us, we so easily deceive ourselves in our spiritual walk. So, Father, I'm asking you right now in the name of Jesus Christ for every individual that's sitting here that you would show them where they are spiritually, whether they're moving forward or they're shrinking back. Show those individuals who do not know you the fact that they are separated from you and the opportunity they have this morning to put their faith in Christ and to make their heart His home as they would invite Him in to forgive them of their sins and take control of their lives. And, Lord, for those believers who have been shrinking back, who have been wearing a mask, who have been being the hypocrite, walking in unbelief and disobedience. God, God, I pray in your infinite mercy that you would stop them dead in their tracks and that this would be the morning when they would turn back to you in repentance, knowing that you're extending this morning mercy and grace. And then, Father, for those that are moving forward, that are struggling, that are tired, that are worn out, Lord, let them just come into the Holy of Holies. Let them come into your presence. Let them know the embrace of your loving arms. Let them know your tender, tender love. And give them the grace to keep on keeping on. So, Father, as we close this service, we want to thank you for your tender love that touches us. But we also want to thank you that you love us enough to, to get tough when you need to. And Father, just give us the grace when that happens to not scorn your discipline, not to run from your discipline, but to accept it. Knowing that we are your child, you're committed only to our good, and you only have our best in mind. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.